Hey, everybody, Lori Rudiman here. Welcome to this week's episode of Let's Fix Work. On today's show, I'm speaking to Elena Valentine. She is the co-founder and CEO of a Chicago-based filmmaking company called Skill Scout. Elena and her colleagues are workplace documentarians. They tell workplace stories. What's a workplace story? Well, it could be a video on a careers page. It could be a film attached to a job description, or it could be a welcome video on your first day of work. I love this conversation with Elena because we talk about all different work environments, not just white collar corporate professional jobs. And we discuss how every job out there has a purpose and a story behind it. So if you're interested in a far ranging discussion about work, identity, meaning, family, and even ethics, and you want to hear two women with Chicago accents, sit tight and I'll be right back with Elena Valentine and more Let's Fix Work. Work is broken, and so is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, Elena, welcome to the podcast. I am excited to be joining you. Well, I'm excited to have you here. This is a real treat for me, a fellow Chicagoan on the podcast. So my accent's going to just fly out of my mouth. I can't wait for that. That's right. Northwest side. Oh, God, terrible, terrible <laughs> accent. <laughs> so you, you've got a job that I emulate. You are a workplace filmmaker and you have fixed work for yourself. So why don't you tell everybody like who you are and what you're all about? Yeah. So I am the proud founder servant leader of a company called Skill Scout, which is really grounded in my life's purpose which was around what are we doing to create stories, particularly video stories, to make meaningful connections in the workplace. So whether that's hiring, whether that's by, you know, making more meaningful ties between leadership and employees, 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 that's what we do. Well, that's a pretty big umbrella. And when I hear film, video stories, I think that can go in a lot of different directions. That can be those crappy job descriptions with like hokey videos that we see on the internet, or that can be an industrial video telling us not to sexually harass our colleagues. So what does a workplace filmmaker do? How do you tell stories? Yeah. So first of all, this kind of harkens back. And so maybe I should talk a little bit about the background of why we started this. This was rooted in the experiences of young people. We started, you know, well, well over five and a half years ago, but the inspiration from this actually came due to our work, working with young people who lacked access, exposure to jobs. Some of them had never left their neighborhoods. Some of them didn't look good on resumes. And we realized as we were, you know, talking with youth in Baltimore, Chicago, and Oakland was that job descriptions don't show what a job is like. And the Marianne Williamson's quote, you cannot be what you cannot see. And so we found that there was just so much disconnect and so much failure happening as a result of these young people just not understanding what they were expected to do, going on the job and then flailing as a result. And so when we took a step back, we realized there was a power in story and video and to just get them excited about work, just having them start to ask the right questions. And so we just started filming jobs. And that was at the most basic was, what are we doing to film jobs that kept the job simple, that kept it real, and that kept it exciting so that young people could really start to spark conversation about what they might be doing. And so that approach still very much lives with us today, despite you know now that we're doing workplace videos everywhere. 
I think about your background and what you just mentioned, that you're trying to get, at least at the onset, get kids excited about the world of work. You know, you can't fix work unless you fix yourself and you fix the things that are broken within our neighborhoods, within our communities. And I know you have a passion for social justice and equality in the world. How does that all intersect together in the workplace and in workplace storytelling? Yeah, well, it happens in a couple of different ways. I think the first one is recognizing you know, at least in ours, media is a literacy of the 21st century. So if we're thinking about any sort of next-gen attraction, we have to start leaning into the trends of how people are learning about stuff. So whether that's a tour of the White House or braiding your hair, people are going on YouTube to learn about jobs. So, so part of it is just looking at the trends. But I think when it comes to our approach as workplace filmmakers, there's a couple of things that really stood out to me. Another quote by a woman named Catherine Darnstadt said, if you want to change the story, you have to change the storyteller. And that's something that I inherently believe as a workplace filmmaker and as an HR-focused company, that if we're here to help you, X company, attract, retain diverse talent, then we needed to have figured that out ourselves. So a big part of you know how I think about this is it's not just who's in front of the camera, it's also who's behind it. And how are we working together to make sure that we're telling the most authentic story possible? Well, I certainly love that. And it makes me think about the people who are in human resources and who have historically told these stories. And they look, frankly, a lot like me, middle-aged, white, privileged, you know, like driving a Volvo and wearing our comfy clothes. So often we're not the people who are doing work, right? And so I know community is a really big, important driver for you. So can you talk a little bit about the work that you've done in the community and a little bit about the work that you're doing to bridge the gap between current HR departments and the people who are doing work. Yeah. So the way that I look at community could be a few things. And, and you tell me, Laura, I mean, because there's one way that Skill Scout sees community and how we're building community even for our own workforce, but then how we're working to build community with our clients through stories. Is there one path over the other that you meant by that? No. I mean, I think you're right. Community is a big, broad term. And I'm always interested in hearing how people respond to big, vague, open questions. <laughs> so that's that's the power of Oprah that I've learned. Like, what, what do you think about all of this? What do you think about community? I think this has been the biggest challenge for a long time. And mind you, we have some incredible human resource leaders who every day are telling stories right? That is the role of a human resource leader. As a recruiter, you're constantly telling stories of your, of your own experience of others. But you know, I think the big challenge has been, what are we doing to actually empower the employees that we work with to tell the stories themselves? And up until this point, there weren't tools, there weren't trends that were leading us to see that there could be multiple people who could tell this story and in some ways take the weight off of that human resource leader to do that. And so that's been a big part of what we've seen our work to be able to do is what are we doing to not just empower the human resource leaders, but employees to be chief human storytellers of their business. And so the way I like to look at it is, you know, we have the blind men and the elephant story, which is, you know, you have an elephant that comes into town, seven blind men touching this elephant. They'd never touched an elephant before. All of them are just in complete cahoots that, nope, the elephant's a fan. The elephant's a snake because that's what the trunk feels like. When in reality, if you take a step back, what you realize is that all of them are telling the truth. They're just not looking at the elephant from afar. And that's how we have to think about our stories and the communities that we're building in our workplace is that 
our company is not just made up of one story. It's not just of one story of that one human resource leader or those select employees. It's actually all of them. And so what we need to do to, to drive this forward and to get to people's why, to the meaning of their work, is to empower them to share why they do what they do. Well, I'm so glad you brought up why other people do what they do, because I wonder, why do you do what you do? Why are you a workplace filmmaker? Honestly, I, I saw an injustice in the world. You know, I, my life was dramatically changed nine years ago in a woodworking shop in Baltimore. And seeing so many talented young people who had so much drive and so much talent, but were being shut out from the hiring process because they had just gotten out of the juvenile justice system. And so, you know, I think in part we, we do this, we're inspired because we saw that the hiring process was shutting out so many people and not just young people with records that our hiring process actually doesn't work for majority. Why were you in a woodworking shop? nine years ago in Baltimore. How'd you get there? So we were working on a project. So the, the how this whole thing came about is that we were working with the Kellogg Foundation aimed to connect young people to employment. And so they saw this challenge of 6 million young people not in school or in the workforce. And how do we connect them to more meaningful pathways to employment? And so my colleague, Abby and myself were former design researchers at a design innovation firm. And so we were just privileged enough initially to be going on and immersing ourselves in the world of work. And so that meant going into many workforce development nonprofits. That meant getting tours and talking to several CEOs, talent acquisition leaders, folks in, in employers, and then young people to really understand, you know, what was it like to apply and search for jobs at the time? All right. So you see this like disconnect between young kids who are passionate, but maybe didn't have a great upbringing, didn't know anything about the world of work, didn't have role models, were part of the juvenile or even adult justice system. How are you fixing that? Well, we are not the silver bullet. So I want to make that clear that there are several other different factors here. But one of the big pieces that we saw then that still remains true now was exposure. You cannot be what you cannot see. And in the world of work, there are many amazing stories about work. We are just not telling them. And we're certainly not engaging young people in those stories to get them excited about what their careers can do as well. And that's kind of what we hung our hat on to say, there is a power in video, there's a power in storytelling to bring jobs to life, culture, to give companies this new way to kind of differentiate themselves, share what they do, why they're passionate, and to be able to grasp, be it those young people or other candidates or employees who are trying to connect their why to. Because I think the big difference now in work versus, you know, even my parents was we have to be pretty clear about how our company is tied to a specific mission. And for most folks, we want to feel like we can attach ourselves to that mission as well. So that kind of storytelling needs to be told. And I don't think that that was an obligation even 15, 20 years ago for companies to have to share in the way that they have to share now because our generation's demanding it. I don't disagree with you. I think this idea of corporate social responsibility used to just be a buzzword <laughs> and used to be the thing that they kind of rolled out when they were trying to connect what they were doing with some sort of social justice movement that maybe they had to address. But more and more workers of all ages, but especially younger workers, are demanding it. I'm sure you've been put into a situation as a business owner and a filmmaker where companies, organizations, institutions have approached you and maybe their mission, their ethos, their why doesn't match with yours. 
How do you navigate that? Do you take those clients on? And how do you tell stories when they don't necessarily match up with your political, your emotional, your spiritual way that you're walking in life? That is the ethical dilemma of the day, Lori. It's something that keeps me up at night. We've had some challenges in the past, I think, of colleagues who have spoken up to share their discomfort about going into certain work environments. And certainly we think about law enforcement, we think about the prison system. This is a very kind of heated debate. These are are very heated workplaces for a number of different reasons. And I will say that in some ways we've benefited from being kind of a, a newer approach in the sense that most companies who are coming to us have some sort of self-awareness of themselves, right? And companies who are not willing to kind of share the good and some of the bad, we're not going to be the solution for them anyway. So I think we do a lot of filtering just based on kind of how we approach stories. But the other thing I will say, even to a prison system or law enforcement, is that by us working together, there's a couple of things that we need to agree to is that one, more than anything, if we're talking on the recruiting end, this is about giving candidates an opportunity to self-screen in or self-screen out. And if you are not comfortable enough to share stories of leaning into the suck of why this is challenging and into having some thoughtful and honest conversations about why this workplace has been hard for others, we may not be the best partner for you. I'll give a perfect example. I think the Baltimore City Police Department have done a fantastic job that I've seen in being very honest about their current role in the community, how difficult it can be, but how you can be part of the next great comeback story, right? And so every time I think about that, I'm hearkening back to, I think, some precedents of organizations who've played very controversial roles and what they're doing to own that and make it a part of their story. So that's what I would say, kind of for one, we really look to do. But the other thing as a result of all of this reflection in the ethical dilemma is we've put together an organizational creed for ourselves. And I'll pitch it to you here. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. And this came from this very ethical dilemma of my colleagues. We exist to capture the humanity of all humans and jobs. Everyone has a story of work and why it's meaningful. And it is our role as workplace documentarians to capture those stories with reverence, humility, and respect. You know, as I listen to that, I think that is really beautiful and also really big and gives you some freedom to say yes and to say no, which I think is important to you as a business owner as well. So you've got your standards, you've got your ethics, but you've also drawn a line in the sand around some stories that you'll tell and maybe some things that you won't. So I like it. I also think that we often benefit from being in the room, right? So if you weren't in the room and you weren't telling those stories, I would be a little bit worried. Like, I want you there. I want you engaging in a dialogue with, I don't know, gun manufacturers, with pharmaceutical companies, right? Like, uh, if they're interested in hiring you, I would want you to take that work on, Elena, and maybe push and maybe influence from the inside. Yeah, I mean, and and that was a big question. So I think, you know, speaking of, of my own development, I remember we were kind of sitting in a room with a producer and I was asking myself, are we being courageous enough in the stories that we're telling, right? Because I remember she asked us, 
are there companies, industries that you would not work with? And I, at first remember, Abby was like, yeah, we wouldn't work with the NRA. We wouldn't work with this company, this company, this company. And it's not to say, you know, I didn't agree with her, right? You know, because we've built skills got around our personal values, but I did have to play devil's advocate for a bit and say, hold on, Abby, is that the right way? Is it that if we are workplace documentarians that even that gun manufacturer, whoever it is, don't they have a story of work too and of why their work is meaningful? And so much of, and I believe is none of us look like our story and that honest to God, you know, from politics to whatnot, if as individuals, we were giving ourselves opportunities to share our story and our background, I think we'd find way more connective tissue between us than not. And it's proven, right? We have all of these, these studies and data and even fun commercials of two folks who are on opposite sides of the room coming together, not realizing that they're like on opposite sides of the parties. But then they end up sitting down and having a beer together because for the first time, they can actually see each other as people and not as a faceless party or a faceless company. I also think so many of us fall into these tribal ways of living and we forget that these systems don't exist for us anyway. The things that we think are benefiting us, they really benefit the system that they tried to create, right? I mean, this is the criticism of political parties, even of unions. I mean, these systems just end up propagating themselves and they forget about the little people who built them up in the first place. So there's real power in connecting individuals to individuals, which I see some of the work that you're doing. Which is why we, we always have to get to our why, right? Which is why even with unions or whatnot, it's every couple of years or every time is to say, are we still playing the right role are we still involving ourselves in the same way that we needed to involve ourselves 50 years ago? The perfect example is Johnson & Johnson, their credo in the 70s during, you know, that kind of Tylenol hubbub, right? And they faced a big decision whether or not they were going to recall all of this Tylenol and lose millions and millions and millions of dollars or just kind of band-aid it and say, you know, okay, we, we fixed it here in, in, you know, this part of the city and we should be fine. And what did they do? They spent hours behind closed doors, literally thinking about their credo, right? And if their credo is around supporting kind of the health and the, in the, the welfare of families, et cetera, that what they needed to do was to recall all of that Tylenol. But it was because they went to their credo. They spent a lot of time on their why and the meaning of, of their why. So when we can actually reflect on that, it works. I really think about why, why I do the work that I do. And working with you has made me think a little bit more about my why as well. And there's so much in my family of origin that drives me to do what I do in both a healthy way and probably a pathological way. <laughs> you know. So I wonder if you come across that with the people that you work with, do they end up talking about their families as part of their stories? And what's your family like? Do they factor into your story? Of course, families play a factor. Again, I think that that's one of the biggest observations that we're making now, right? Is if we're going to look at this worker, we have to look at this worker holistically, that this worker is, is coming to work quite often because they have a family to raise. So of course, you know, their family and everything they're doing on the outside really matters to them. And they often want to talk about it. So give them that space. There's no longer this separation, I think, between people feeling like it wasn't professional enough to talk about families. I think companies and departments who kind of lean in and into being genuinely interested in each other's families find that they make better connections. In fact, 
there was a whole kind of study done that talked about, you know, yeah, you could give someone a raise, you'll see their productivity, you know, increase over time, it'll plateau. But if you ask someone about their personal life for 10 minutes consistently, before you go into the rigmarole of your work, you will actually see an increased level of production each and every time, because now these people feel like they have been cared for and seen beyond the work that they do. What about you? Like, where does your family intersect in all of this? You talked about being a Latin jazz singer and I've seen you dance on the internet. (laughs) And I know you've got a family, you've got people around you that are vibrant and fun. And how do they all play into all this? So my mom passed away now well over 12 years ago. And she had a very, I think, typical immigrant upbringing. She had a typical immigrant upbringing. Where did she come from? She's Filipino. So born, raised in the San Francisco area, just like many other Filipinos who come here. But I think, you know, why that's important is because for the longest time, as I've reflected, my mom's career was imposed on her. It was assumed that these were the things that she was going to be. And this was the path that she had to follow. And she always had regrets about that. She's always had resentments about that. And so I distinctly remember being younger especially as I was thinking of going into music initially and having her full support. So I, I think this, this idea of why work is important and why I follow my purpose is for that very reason, I know it's a privilege to do that. Same goes for my husband. You know, I think I remember for the first time, my husband looking at me as I was doing Skill Scout, not realizing that you could fall in love with the work the way that I did. I don't think he had seen up until that point that people could be passionate about what they do every day. Because again, same thing for him, you know, was very motivated by making sure he wasn't poor, not about finding something that one's passionate in. You know, that story of people thinking work is work and having their careers imposed on them and their lives imposed on them. That's my story of my family. That's like the sad American story because we have one path for some people where they can be all that they can be and they have all kinds of opportunities. And then there's the rest of us that kind of either fell into what we were doing or their parents fell into what they were doing. And then they had obligations and you must see that all the time. And it must be heartbreaking to see people who have fallen into work and have never been in love with their jobs. So how do you retain your optimism about the world of work? Because you are essentially so positive about work, right? You believe that work can be a healthy component of your identity. And in fact, sometimes I hear it in you that it it's almost a majority of the identity that people have. So talk to me a little bit about identity and talk to me about optimism. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the moment I knew that one's work was attached to an identity. I'm a former labor organizer. And I remember organizing in Chicago, CNAs and nurses. And I'm 22 years old, talking to men and women who are double my age, right? And so what a awkward position and a humbling position to be in. And I remember as, you know, we're talking about people coming together and and to form a union that, you know, no wonder that there could be pushback because we're talking about people's livelihoods here and the identity that they have, regardless if they're from a cafeteria worker to a CNA to a nurse, that what they did every day brought so much meaning to them, not just even in their, their customers or their clients, but to the sustainability of their family. And that inevitably what I was asking them to do felt like a risk to that stability and sustainability. 
But it is all to say that even in the worst of workplaces, that there are still people who are attempting to find meaning in the work that they do. One of my favorite stories is, you know, John F. Kennedy going to NASA, stops a janitor and asks the janitor, what are you doing? And the janitor looks him dead eye, says, I'm helping take a man to the moon. And so it actually really doesn't matter the actual role that you play in an organization. If there is a company who is able to communicate the story of their why and why they exist, that employees at all levels can start to see and understand how they're tied to these missions. That's really so powerful and such a missed opportunity. I mean, I love the optimism that you have. I love that you believe that all work can be that meaningful. And so often people come to work and they see themselves just as janitors, right? Or just as sanitation workers or just as police officers or even just as HR ladies like I did for so many years where I really could have been a coach, an advisor, somebody's person who got them through a difficult moment, right? And I just, I missed all of that. It's one of my my biggest regrets in my own story. What do you think was the hangup? Was it the company who wasn't communicating that? Why for you, why did it feel like there was such a disconnect? Um, well, I think it's probably my family of origin as well, where I was taught that work is the thing you do. And so I always had a chip on my shoulder, you know, like work was the oppressive thing that got in the way of your happiness. And I never saw work as the thing that could deliver happiness to me until maybe it was a little too late. And I had burned a lot of bridges in my corporate work environment. And I was like, (laughs) I can't fix this. I got to get out of work to get back into work in a healthier way. But I don't think I'm alone. Like there's so many people in my life who go to work and they're like, F this, this is exhausting. I'm never going to be happier. These people don't have my best interests at heart. And that may be true and it may not be true, but that's certainly what they bring to the job. So I like that what you're doing is really reframing work and reframing an opportunity for us to be happy at work, for us to do something beyond our own immediate need, right? (laughs) You know? And And because there's not enough positive stories, right? If we think about the discourse of work right now in the newspapers, it's, it's about me too, or it's about, you know, a company who's screwed over X. And when in reality, actually, you know, I see work as being a place that has unlimited opportunity. We're just not sharing those stories enough. And I think that's kind of the purpose that we've brought is that actually there's a, there's so many positive stories about the world of work. And if only we could help to elevate that, that we could kind of inspire people. And, and even more so, the person that was even interviewed, shining a light on them to be seen and to be valued and to be heard. So even in that small act, I think inevitably that that to me, I see as being one of the biggest you know impacts that we make is on these individual levels you know, we're working with folks who, especially when we're working with manufacturing, these are folks who probably had never talked about why they went into manufacturing in the first place. And so it was such a gift to not just give them that moment, but to even be on the receiving end of it. Well, I'm excited about what you do and the future of Skill Scout and all the ways that you can really help other people fix work and ultimately fix themselves, right? Fix what's going on in their communities. So if people want to learn more about you and more about your organization, like where do they go? How do they find you? You know, you can hop on LinkedIn or Twitter. We can go to skillscout.com and contact us. But, you know, really, we're here to be sounding boards for ideas and, and vision. And I mean, this is what we geek out on. We geek out on 
stories of the workplace. So bring it on, bring your challenge, bring your questions. Let's do this. Well, I'm excited for your 2020 and beyond. I'm really bullish on Skill Scout and I'm bullish on you, Elena. Like you are just a magnificent storyteller. You've become a good friend. And I just, I love getting to know you and seeing all the good work that you're doing. So thanks for being a guest. All right, everybody stick around. We'll be right back with more Let's Fix Work. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Elena Valentine. Now, if you want to learn more about her, or connect with her, you can go to laurierudeman.com forward slash let's fix work dash 92. As always, Let's Fix Work was produced by Danny Osmond and his team at Emerald City Productions. If you have feedback on how to make the show twice as good, you can hit me up at hello at letsfixwork.com. Now that's all for today and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by number one, subscribing to Let's Fix Work on the Apple Podcasts app or iTunes or Stitcher or Android or wherever you listen. Number two, write a five-star rating and review. And number three, share it with a friend, colleague, or coworker who you think would enjoy our episodes.